How's everyone doing? Yeah, it's good to see you all. If I haven't met you yet, if you're new here to our church, welcome. I'm Josh, I'm one of the pastors. And so today we're in a brand new teaching series uh, called What Are You Looking For? So we're going to be looking through the Gospel of John. And there are several times where Jesus is asked this question, uh, or asked the people that are around him this question, what are you looking for? And so, uh, yeah, we're, we're gearing up for Easter. We're, we want, we're wanting to look at the life and ministry uh, and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so this, this is going to take us there. And so before we jump in today, it's, it's important for us to know and to be aware that as Jesus is asking this question, what are you looking for? There is, there is uh, he, he's wanting to influence the, the decisions and behavior that we demonstrate. He, he wants to guide us and direct us. And so to be aware of our decisions and how we make decisions, I think is a critical first step as Jesus is wanting to realign us to the kingdom of God and to his design for human flourishing as, as God created us. And so there's a psychologist and author named Jonathan Haidt. Uh, he's at NYU and he's given us a, a metaphor for how we as humans make decisions. Uh, it's a brilliant example of how we make decisions, how we implement change, how we change directions in our life. And so he says that, that human beings are made really of two decision-making systems. And he gives us this metaphor of a writer and an elephant to demonstrate that. So the writer part of us would be the rational part of us, the, the part that analyzes facts and information, the, the part of us that plans our uh, next week or next month out. It's the part of us that we're consciously making decisions, right? But there's something deeper within us, the elephant part of us. This is the emotional system. Now, the writer may want to plan to go a certain direction at a certain pace at a certain time, but how many of you know the elephant part really is the power and the drive behind seeing that change and that decision-making follow through? H- have you ever been in a situation where you feel like your writer and your elephant are at odds with one another? Who wins? It's usually the elephant, right? Like you're, the writer part of you can say, I want to do this. You, you can have this, you know, if you, 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 the head part of you says, I want to do this. Maybe you made some New Year's resolutions and it's April 3rd. And you're like, oh, those, right. That's the writer and the elephant, knowing all the right facts, but never being able to really do the thing that you set out to do. The elephant part of you needs some different kind of motivation. You can't just tell an elephant, go that way. It needs to be motivated in a different way. So I'm sure none of you have felt at odds with your head and your heart being in in two different places or going two different directions. But I think this is super helpful that we, have, we need to understand how we make decisions and how we actually walk out change is, is more than just facts and information. There's something down deep in the core of us that actually needs to be influenced. And when we look at the life of Jesus, what we don't see him is getting into very many arguments, do we? In our kind of Western mind, our kind of way of thinking, it's like whoever has the most facts or the best facts or whoever can shut down the other person usually wins the debate, usually wins the argument. And that's all fine and good, but it doesn't actually influence us for long-term change. Jesus knows this. He doesn't go around debating. He's not a Greek philosopher who shows up on the scene at the Areopagus and, and, and devastates his opponents with 
airtight arguments. Like he could do that. He is God in the flesh. He created logic. He created that writer part of us. But when Jesus shows up, he does something different. It's, it's as if he looks past all the rationale. He looks past all the logic and touches the thing behind the thing. He touches the heart to influence his hearers. And as we read the Gospels, as we look in, even in, in uh, the Gospel of John, we see this again and again where he's talking maybe past and questioning past the obvious answers to get at that deeper thing. And when he does that, it like pulls something out. There's an awareness and a wrestling of those deeper things that are going on inside of us. So early in the Gospel of John, we're introduced to a man named John the Baptist, who is a prophet that God has raised up. It, we find out in other uh, gospels and other places in the scripture, he's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He's there, God has raised him up as a forerunner to the Messiah. He's there to close out the Old Covenant or Old Testament. And God has raised him up as a voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare Israel for the coming of her Messiah. Messiah is just the Jewish word for king or anointed leader. Basically the, the, the king that had been promised for generations to come and, and bring Israel Israel back into her golden age. John the Baptist is not the Messiah, and he makes that very clear, but he's there to prepare the way for the Messiah's coming. We actually learn that John the Baptist is a relative of Jesus, probably like a cousin, like a, like a second, third cousin, twice removed. I don't know what that means still. I'm 43. I'm still like figuring that out, but he might be that, whatever that means to Jesus. So they're familiar. They kind of grew up uh, 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 they, they met when they were both in the womb, uh, uh, so to speak. And so they knew of each other. Their families hung out on those, you know, awkward, like, family reunions. Like, they're hanging out. And so for John to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, he probably had to wrestle with some stuff. Like, am I hearing God right? Like, this is my cousin. Like, I, I got to baptize him. I, I remember dunking him in the river a couple years ago. Now it's super awkward because I got to do it for real. And, you know, all that stuff is coming up. So John, here's what it says in, in John 1. Verse 35, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. So he's known as this prophet. He's got his own group of apprentices that are looking to him for guidance and wisdom in the ways of the kingdom. When John, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Other translations, basically this question means, what is it that you're looking for? It's not a curt like, hey, what do you want? It's, it's this deeper question that probes the inner workings of the heart. Why are you following me? What is it that you're looking for? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So there's that, that kind of dodge. Hey, where are you staying? Come on and I'll show you. He, he doesn't usually answer a question directly like that. It's usually an invitation. It's usually another question. So they went and saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had said and had, who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. After hanging out with Jesus for one day, they're convinced that the conquering king of Israel has finally showed up. I don't know what that conversation was like. I don't know what Jesus did to convince them. They just hung out together. The gospel, it's always interesting what the Bible doesn't say, isn't it? 
We're left to our kind of sanctified imagination to go, what in the world can convince these guys, this, this poor Jewish carpenter, this, this, this worker of the dirt, was this royal king come to save the entire nation? We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. You're the rock. Peter. The, Dwayne Johnson, not quite Dwayne Johnson, but you know, it's close. <laughs> so as Jesus' own public ministry commences, John knows that his ministry is slowing and shutting down. That's his job, is to point completely to Jesus. So he transfers his followers, his disciples, to Jesus. He he doesn't want to be mistaken for Israel's king, and he certainly doesn't want his followers to be hanging around with him when the God of the universe has stepped onto the world stage. He doesn't want to take any of that glory for himself. To get their attention on Jesus, he proclaims several times in in, uh, 1st chapter John, look, it's God's offering, the Lamb of God, it's God's offering to restore humanity. You see, we suffer a broken condition due to sin, due to the the condition resulting from the fall where uh, uh, humans rebelled against God, sin entered our world. And it's more than like good intentions gone awry, it's more than like, you know, good hopes that we can't quite measure up to. It's that we're corrupted from the inside out and it affects everything in our world. And so when John is talking about the lamb, the lamb is this really familiar uh, 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 moniker that the ancient Near East would be familiar with. The lamb of God has been sent from God to bring healing and reconciliation, getting to the root of our situation. So lamb is something from the Old Testament, both their sacrificial system, they had a whole system that God had created for them so their consciences could be cleansed, so they could be restored to to some sort of relationship with God, although it was tenuous and although it was still distant. There was a sacrificial system. And so when John is, is calling Jesus the lamb, he's taking that to the next level. And he's basically saying there's something new that is going to be inaugurated with the coming of this Messiah. Lamb, one of the most uh, familiar passages is from Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4, where we understand Jesus' work on the cross, why he had to come for us and to us. Isaiah says this, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested, for he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. So in in a minute we'll return to the, the theme of salvation and judgment and really unpack that a little bit more, but as John's disciples are introduced to Jesus, he asked them, and us by extension, what do you want? Meaning, what is it that you're looking for? And so I would ask that question to us today. What is it that you're looking for? Why do you buy the things that you do at the stores that you shop at? Why do you vacation where you vacation? What is it that you're looking for? Why do you open your Bibles throughout the week? Why do you pray the prayers that you pray? Why do you hope for the hope 
that you have. Why did you come to church today? What is it that you're looking for? You see, it's that question that really probes beyond our, our conscious thoughts that gets into the hopes and dreams and fears and anxieties of the human condition. And it's that inside of us that God is wanting to draw out to help us be aware of so that we can take the steps towards him and towards human flourishing in the kingdom of God. I think it was Socrates who said the, uh, the life unexamined isn't worth living. It's the same concept that we need to be aware of what's going on inside of us because there are a lot of things in here that are influencing us and they may be influencing us away from Jesus even though we go to church regularly, even though we pray and read our Bible regularly. You see, there are all sorts of narratives going on in here that we're both aware and unaware of. James Bryan Smith in his book, The Good and Beautiful God, says this, we are creatures who live by our stories. From early on, we were told stories by our parents which help us interpret how life is or how life ought to be. We are naturally drawn to stories and must follow them to their conclusion because stories are exciting. Jesus taught primarily in story form. One reason might be that stories are memorable. We may not be able to remember many or any of the Beatitudes, but we all can remember the story of the prodigal son. When we have a significant experience, one that shapes us, we turn it into a story. So there's, in his book, he lists out four different stories. I just think it's, it's good to be aware of how, these, uh, how, how we've embraced them, internalized them, and how they shape us. There's first family narratives. They're the stories that we have learned from our family of origins, our parents, and our caregivers impart to us their worldview and ethos so that we're able to tell right from wrong and navigate questions such as, who am I? Why am I here? And am I valuable? Okay? And these are, there's all, there's parts of this that are good. There are parts of this that are not good that we need to be freed from through the gospel of Jesus. There are cultural narratives. They're particular to where we've grown up and they give us a framework to how to view success in our world and in our life. Think of uh, Americans and our rugged individualism. That's a cultural narrative, the, the DIY. I can do this by myself. I can do it on my own just fine. That's an American cultural narrative where we've embraced like the pioneers and the cowboy era is like heroic. That's a, that's a, a uniquely American thing versus maybe uh, Eastern cultures and their value for honor and family and communal responsibility. You don't do things that shame the family. That's an Eastern cultural narrative. There are religious narratives, stories we hear preached like today. There are religious narratives that I'm hoping to influence you by, but there are religious narratives both positive and negative. Who is God? Is he a God of love, a God of relationship, a God of connection, or is he a wrathful God, an angry God, a distant God, and he's, he's waiting to whack you? Those are religious narratives that we have embraced through growing up. Lots of people have walked away from church either because they've heard this narrative and just like can't handle it anymore and break up with that narrative or they uh, see that Christians don't measure up to their own religious narratives of being a people of love, okay? And so becoming aware of these narratives is a lifelong journey. Many of us are in therapy trying to unlearn some of these uh, narratives, right? 
You've gone to counseling, you've done spiritual direction to become equipped to replace that with gospel truth. Because the final narrative is Jesus' narrative. The stories and images Jesus tells us to reveal the character and nature of God. Is that helpful? I don't know. There might be a lot of like prayer introspection work. That, that, that's okay. We're going to get to that and Jesus will meet you there. I'm, I'm confident of it. These followers who are listening to their former teacher, John, and their new teacher, Jesus, respond by asking Jesus where he's staying. There's in this question, Rabbi, where are you staying? A lot of cultural narratives they're trying to figure out. They're trying to peg Jesus on their value system relating to religious, culture, and family, familial narrative. If Jesus tells them where he's staying, they can place him in a certain place in Israel, connected to a certain family, and a certain family values and rhythms and all that good and negative stuff that comes with knowing who your neighbors are, right? But Jesus dodges it. He doesn't tell them where he's staying. He's tell them where he, he tells them where he's going. Is that interesting? I find the whole interaction in these just short verses, they, they want to know, where are you going to be reliably? Where are you hanging out? Where, if we get around to it, can we come visit you if it suits our comfort and our ease? And Jesus says, no, I'm not necessarily staying in one place. I'm going somewhere, and I want you to follow me. You see, the mission of God is never static, always dynamic. To join God on his mission means to sacrifice our comfort and our ease to follow him wherever he directs us and guides us and invites us. So as they spend the day together, they're convinced that John's correct. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so they begin inviting other people to invite this same Messiah. Those that have been evangelized become the evangelists as they invite more and more people to come and consider, to come and see, to come and behold the Lamb of God. And so Peter is one of those people. It's just really interesting to me that instead, again, of Jesus getting into a, de a debate of the Old Testament prophecies about how he is the Messiah, he extends this invitation. And when he sees Peter, he says, you're not, you're not uh, uh, Simon anymore. I'm going to call you Cephas, it's Peter, which means the rock. He reaches into Peter's soul and calls out his identity. Past all the familial, all the religious, all the cultural narratives that Peter has about himself, and even though he's not fully formed as someone who is a rock, that's what he basically calls him. You're not, you're not Simon, you're rocky. You're, you're, you're solid, you're steady. Peter's like, who, me? Like me? He reaches into his soul and pulls out what's behind the thing, behind the thing, behind the thing. And Peter is just enthralled. He's intrigued. And so, of course, he joins him. So how does, returning to this, this idea and these questions about salvation and judgment, how does this affect us? Like, is this just information to, to be aware of? Like, how does the Lamb of God literally take away the sin of the world? And so... Jesus offers more than just amnesty, more than just a forgiveness, more than just, I'm just gonna wipe your slate clean. We'll just call it even between humans and God. It'll be okay now. There's something more in a transaction that occurs, and that 
is called atonement. And you can think of atonement as at one minute, where God and, and humans are brought back into relationship. And as scholars and theologians and even just like people like us, regular Joe Schmoes in Manhattan, Kansas, look at how God and humans are brought back together, they've, they've looked at it in several different ways and understood different theories of how that actually happens. So if you'll indulge, indulge me for just a moment, um, I know this can get like overwhelming uh, when we're learning, learning new theological terms. You can kind of feel like, well, this is like classroom and I'm not really scholarly and you shouldn't ask me about my GPA. But I'm convinced, I know one thing about you all. If you can go to Arrow and order a coffee, you can learn some theological words. So if you'll just indulge me for a minute and sit down your iced oat milk matcha latte, or you know, if you're like me, your venti blonde roast Americano, the way God meant coffee to be drank. Um, we're gonna dig in, okay? Here's what, Josh McNall, he's a professor at Oklahoma Wesleyan. He wrote a book called The Mosaic of Atonement. Mosaic of Atonement. It's a fantastic, really accessible read when it comes to atonement theory. He says this, for many people, the atonement seems like a puzzle with pieces that do not fit while other crucial bits are missing. In response, Christians have developed models, metaphors, and motifs that help articulate the meaning of redemption. These pieces of the picture represent imperfect attempts to imagine how Christ's work actually works. Like a puzzle, the pieces of mosaic artwork remain visible upon completion. Unlike a photo whose tiny pixels present a seamless blend of color and shape, both puzzles and mosaics show us how the pieces fit together while also allowing each piece to retain a recognizable particularity. If one stands close, one can identify individual squares of glass or tile that compose the greater picture. And if one steps back, one could admire the larger image. Yet when presented with the great mosaics of age-old Christian churches, viewers are meant not to construct the image, but to appreciate it. The goal, the goal in going through all of this is worship. And here's an example of a mosaic. I'm sure you've seen these, but just as an example. See how this mosaic that would exist maybe on a ceiling or a wall, possibly even a floor, in an ancient building used for worship. You can zero in on the little tiles the little pieces one by one. You can look at the different theories of atonement and just look at their shape and how they sit in relation to that, but the bigger idea is to step back and to look at the overall picture and let it lead us to Jesus, okay? So here's, here are four different theories of atonement and what they mean to us and for us. The first is called recapitulation. This view centers Adam and Jesus and how Adam failed to live up to God's standard when he rebelled. And Jesus is known as the second Adam, who did what the first Adam could not do. He lived a blameless life. And where Adam only passed on death, Jesus has passed on to us his life. So support for this is seen in Romans 5. It's, it's really all over the scripture, but I'll give you maybe a, a, uh, an address, so to speak, in the Bible for where you could dig in a little bit more and get a, a, a broader picture of what this looks like. So you can see this in Roman, Romans 5 where Apostle Paul says that through one man, death entered the world, but through Jesus, grace has been passed on to the many, okay? So that's recapitulation. Second is, I'm going to go through this really fast, so you might snap a picture or just write this down for later, uh, because there's, this brings up lots more questions than it answers, because I can give 60 seconds to things that have been studied for thousands of years, quite frankly, but we're going to move on, okay? Next is substitution. In this view, Jesus bore the penalty for human sin upon the cross. 
He was substituted for us because divine judgment was poured out on him instead of us. This view is really popular among evangelical Protestants, and there are streams that emphasize God's wrath. So there are subdivisions of this that emphasize punishment on Jesus instead of us. That's known as penal substitutionary atonement. Isaiah 53, which we read earlier, is a key passage where substitutionary atonement is highlighted and described. Okay. The third is Christus Victor. This is uh, really popular actually in the Catholic Church. This view sees all of salvation as a triumph and emphasizes how, through his death on the cross, Jesus disarmed principalities and powers in his defeat of Satan. And Jesus' resurrection is proof of his victory. So support is found in 1 John 3, 8, where it says, The reason of the Son of God, uh, the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. We would say amen to that, even though it's mostly a, like held by Catholics. That's still a really good scripture, really good viewpoint, right? So the fourth and the last one that we'll cover is called moral influence. This uh, view is popular in the Orthodox Church and sees love as a transforming power. First uh, John 4, 8 says, God is love. And because of that, Jesus is love incarnate. It was willing to go to the utter distance by dying a self-giving death on the cross for us and to welcome us back into his family. Jesus is the exemplar in all things of how we should live, always focusing on the good and serving others, loving them on, uh, uh, in God's love. And anything in us that hinders love needs to be healed and surrendered to God. So once we grasp these theories of atonement, maybe this is your first time, maybe you're familiar with some of these, is this just for our information? Is, this if, if, is it FYI so we can just be smarter Christians? And what I would say is no. How you view the atonement, and not as like, I prefer this one, like giving uh, 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 credence to the others, but saying this is more the, because you'll actually in the church hear that redemption is only penal substitutionary atonement. And what McNall is saying is that no, all of these fit together in this mosaic. All of them have weaknesses because they're theories. There's nowhere in scripture where it says, this is it. Once and for all, this is why Jesus died. There, there's a mosaic of, of how and why Jesus died to accomplish redemption. And so, because that's true, because we need to grasp these things that actually does influence decisions that we make and behavior that we demonstrate. Because <clears throat> remember, John's, John the Baptist said, behold the lamb, meaning it's an invitation to come and meditate on him. There's, there's a mystery that he's shrouded in, in the person and work of Jesus, of himself. And so to step further into that and ask, like, what is there for me to mine out and to apply to my life means that there really is something. There is, really is something that will influence us and help us be more aligned to kingdom values in the way of Jesus. In fact, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, starting in 15, says this. Even to this day when Moses is read, meaning like when uh, uh, non-Jesus-following Jews read the Old Testament, uh, a veil covers their hearts. They don't fully understand it. But whenever uh, anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the, is the Spirit, and the, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate, behold, we come and see the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Meaning, 
These atonement theories and considering the personal work of Jesus isn't something where we pray a prayer and we can leave it in our past. There is more depth there that when we turn more fully to God and we contemplate, we meditate on Jesus, there's further transformation that happens. We go from glory to glory, deeper into the Lord's work. So there's a mystery here in this partnership with the Spirit of God where there's a greater supernatural reality in us where we are transformed into Jesus' likeness when we look at him, when we behold him, okay? So why does this matter? And, and it matters because to, to apprentice Jesus means to be with him, to be like him, and to do what he does. And so we wanna do what Jesus does ultimately, not just have this be information for us, but we wanna be transformed into him and do the stuff that he did. Now, we'll never take away the sin of the world. That's not on us. We will never be fully God in, 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 in that sense. But in the sense of, of following Jesus and demonstrating his character, each of these theories, I think, has an influence on how we are to behave. So let's just start. Recapitulation means that for us, we understand that Adam failed, yet Jesus succeeded. And we can follow in the way of Jesus as God's representatives. We can bless and share good news. We can cultivate and expand the footprint of heaven. Jesus taught us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. He means that in our city and in our neighborhood as it is in heaven. He's placed you in impossible situations. You ever feel in over your head? It's because God has placed you there as his representative so supernatural love and wisdom may triumph. Substitution. Jesus laid down his life for the sake of others. We do the same when we don't return hate for hate and violence for violence. When we become a servant and we take the lowly position, we are reflecting his image and other people are getting glimpses of what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. Christus Victor means that if Jesus has disarmed the principalities and powers, they are then ripe for plunder. That's what it means. When he disarmed all evil in the world, that means there are still broken world systems that are in place, but they're actually an invitation for people that follow Jesus and who are anointed with the Spirit of God to step into those things because evil world systems will be perpetual unless the cycle is broken by someone stepping in as a representative of the kingdom of heaven. What keeps you up at night? Is it food scarcity? Is it racism? Is it childhood impoverishment? Is it disease and war? There are cycles of human history that will continue to carry on in these ways unless we step in because the powers and principalities of evil are done. And then finally, moral influence. And I think this is one where the church has tried to gain a political power to legislate our values onto people. And I think in the upside-down kingdom, it's not top-down influence, it's bottom-up as we follow in the way of Jesus, loving people and demonstrating the, the love of Christ in people's lives. God is love, and he is at work creating a people of love. They're free of themselves, and they bring hope into dark places. Now, the problem, the tension, really, is that he was beaten, brutalized, and betrayed for the greater good of reconciling humanity, yet I'm inflamed at online trolls and when I get cut off in traffic. So anytime where that comes up, where I go, Jesus was able to love people to the extreme, and like this guy that retweets me and is snarky, like sets me off for the day, I go, 
I have more work to do, Jesus. I have more healing and surrender to be this moral influence, to be a people of love, a person of love in other people's lives. I have more beholding the lamb to do. I'm sure that's only me, right? Okay. And yet, I know, I know, we're going to wind down here in a minute. I know there there are those here who would say, I think these are great theories. I think this is great information. And yet, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that Jesus is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. You can't quite get to the place that you believe or you look at the church and go, is that what you want to turn me into? Because no thanks. And look, I get it. I really do. I understand that this is a journey that we're all on. I don't think uh, that we have these misnomers like making a decision for Christ. I don't know that making a decision, praying a prayer is, is a moment in time. I think it's a journey as Jesus invites us to come back and see, come back and consider, come back and behold. And a decision, that writer is the sum total of the elephant over time being influenced by the narratives of Jesus. Maybe he, he is that good. Maybe he can be that trustworthy. Maybe life in the kingdom is better than the world that I'm experiencing. And so I would say if you're there, if you are not quite sure where you are with Jesus, just come back, come and see. And there's room, there's space here to be on the journey wherever you are. I know that's, that's my story. Um, it's, it's interesting, today was actually, is actually 20 years since I became a Christ follower, 20 years to the day. I remember my, my fifth year, my victory lap in college, I was, uh, I was as wayward, like I wasn't born a pastor. I don't know if y'all know that, like pastors aren't born, they're, they're formed, they're called. Uh, and so I was, I was here at K-State, I was in a fraternity, living life, just to what I thought was the full. And in the fall, 9-11 had happened. And really through a lot of like existential questions, like, wow, it doesn't feel safe living in America. I, I live in literally the middle of the country and it just feels like at any time something bad could happen now. Like, I don't, I don't know if those of you who were you know, aware of what was happening around 9-11, that, that was the feeling that we had. And it brought up a lot of spiritual questions. I started going to a Bible study, started going to church, because I was, I was just, I was searching at that point for something bigger and, and something that could answer the questions that I was having about, well, I was, I was pointed to having a good life. I wanted, you know, the house, the white picket fence, the 2.5 kids, and now it just feels like none of that matters anymore. It's really like soul-searching time. And so there was a guy that would uh, come to our fraternity and lead a Bible study, and he invited me out for coffee. I never drank coffee before this. I was in a fraternity. We drank beer. That's just what we did, right? And so, um, you know, he's like, and, and there was a girl I liked that went to church. And she's like, you go to church? And I'm like, sure, I'll go, I go to church. I hadn't been in church in years, but it's like, I, I've gone to church in the past, right? And so between the two of them and the, the influence of just hearing about Jesus, and this guy would sit down with me across the table and share Jesus with me and say, Jesus wants your life. He, does, he doesn't just want an hour a week. And I'm like, I, you know, I'm 22. I've never heard this in my life. I've never heard, you know, Jesus is God's son. I kind of knew what that was, but that he took away the sin of the world and that he wants my life. He wants me to follow him and I need to surrender everything. I'm just like, I've never heard that before. And I've gone to church. I've just never heard that before. 
And I'm not, at, at 22, almost 23, like, I, I'm kind of in my prime. I'm not sure I want that interrupted. I just want you to make me feel better about myself. And that went on uh, for a number of months, actually, until uh, March, late March, I was out with a couple guys from the fraternity here actually downtown in Manhattan, and we had a keg on a Wednesday night, like, as you do, I, whatever. And uh, so... I, I drove, which means I had less beard than the other guys, because you're dumb when you're 22. Like, literally, your brain is not fully formed until you're 25. So young guys at 22, 23, like, when they go, why did you do, you ask them, why do you do that? I don't know. That's literally true. They don't, they don't know. They make dumb decisions. So I made a dumb decision, and I drove that night, and I got pulled over uh, by City Park, and I got arrested. And my, my whole life was set up to, like, I, I call it Midwest moralism. Like, do good and be good, right? I feel good. I feel like I'm good with God because I went to church. I got my conscience cleansed. And if I do good stuff and I'm a good person, then I feel good about myself. Well, the, the crashing reality that came in to, to the car that night is I'm getting arrested for a DUI. Good people don't get DUI. So what does that now make me? I'm a bad person. And I was humiliated. And so I got coffee April 3rd, um, 2002, with, with this guy a week later. And he said, I, I heard something happen. What happened? And so I told him the story. And I just, I've, I've never experienced grace, both what he offered me and what he demonstrated to me, because there was no guilt and no condemnation. The, the, all the stuff that I'm feeling, I'm a bad, terrible person who God does not like, obviously. And he simply asked me, what, what do you want to do about that? What do you think we should do about that? And it was finally like where everything came down, and I told him, I'll, I'll do anything you tell me to do. Like I was that raw, that humiliated, that open. I will do anything you tell me to do. Just make this go away. And he, he said, would you like to receive Jesus as your Savior? I'm like, yeah, however you do that, let's do that. And so in the back of Verdina's in Aggieville, he led me through a prayer. And, and there were no fuzzy feelings necessarily. I can't tell you, like, I got raptured to third heaven for 30 minutes and five minutes only passed here. It wasn't anything like that. But it was like the grace and the love that he gave and the complete washing away of, yeah, I still have consequences of my stupid decisions, but none of the guilt and shame is mine anymore because Jesus took it away. That's what happened. It was, it was, it was amazing. And if you've, if you've experienced that, whether praying you know, a sinner's prayer or whether just receiving God's love, you know what I'm talking about. That is what it means to take away the sin of the world, to get at the root issues of I've gone my own way, I've tried to make my own meaning, and God wants me back in his family. That's what it means. And so this week, what I would like you to do, what I would invite you to do, I'm going to have the worship team come on up, is just marinate in the good news of Jesus uh, by reading John 1. Just whatever translation, you might even use a couple different ones. Sometimes I find that reading the normal Bible version that I'm used to and switching over to another one helps engage my heart in a little different way. Maybe pick up the message translation from Eugene Peterson. I, I love that one. It's a paraphrase that is like, it just engages your mind and your heart in a different way. What I would invite you to do is just immerse yourself in the story of Jesus and behold, behold Jesus this week.
That's it. So why don't you stand with me? I just would love to pray over you. If you're at home, if you're listening to this later, just get in a comfortable space. Let's, let's pray. Um, so God, we're here before you and there's so many stories represented here in this room and, and online as well. Now, I don't know where everybody's at, but God, you do. We know uh, your scripture tells us that you've, you've formed each of them and you've knit them together. You have a, a, a call, a destiny, a purpose on each one of these lives. Each story here matters to you. And we thank you for that, God. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, God, that, that you're not done with any of us. We might be done with ourselves. We might be done with each other, but you're not anywhere near done with any of us. So God, I, I just I pray that that question, what are we looking for, would be drawn out this week. Where do we stake our hope, our meaning, our joy? And in each and every way that it's not you, Jesus, and it's not life in your kingdom, I pray that you would nudge us, redirect us, and in your kindness, help us to surrender to you. And I pray for those that, that are here, who are watching or listening that don't know where they're at with you. I know your invitation for them is, is just as powerful as, as it was for me at 20, 22, 23, come and see. We're just gonna keep our heads bowed. I, I, I do wanna give space. If you don't know where you're at with God, I do wanna invite you to take that next step. You can pray this out loud. You can pray this under your breath. And Jesus, I believe you. That you are the son of God. That you're the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And you've taken away my sin. So I surrender to you. And I'll follow you. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.